This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. Scott Radley in for Rick Zamprin today. We are going to be talking about the politicizing of policing, about Cineplex charging more money if you want to buy a movie ticket online. We're going to be chatting about a massive, speaking of money, a massive local donation to the Hamilton Community Foundation. Very generous thing we're going to be explaining. Should cell phones be in classrooms? That is always a question that is going on. Is it a good thing or a bad thing for students to have that? We've got the gas price situation going on and we are asking why are all the available of flavors of pop tarts not available in canada that may be the question of the year well we'll get to it today stick around this is the good morning hamilton podcast on 900 chml some places including the united states the president of the united states is now suggesting a gas tax vacation over the summer for three months take away some of the federal gas taxes to help people out is that something we should be looking at north of the border dan mctague is president of canadians for affordable energy he joins us now thanks for doing this dan and i'm guessing if i had to read your mind you might say yes to this one I would say yes to this one, um, <laughs> but I think it uh, it has to be done with a major, major asterisk beside it, Scott. And that's because if you drop the price of gasoline, which is a good thing in and of itself, uh, you risk uh, creating greater demand. The problem right now is the supply crunch in the United States and to a lesser extent in Canada. Uh, refineries there are running at 94, 95% uh, capacity. You're going to say, well, hey, that's they still have a little 5% to go. You have to be mindful of the way in which a refinery runs. These are complicated uh, plants that run at very high temperatures. When you keep doing that consistently without maintenance and you've put off uh, you know, the regular flow, which is 85, 88%, you risk those plants shutting down. And so while it, on the surface, it sounds like a good thing, we're talking about four and a half cents a liter, 18 cents a gallon. It may not have the impact, I think, that some people expect. In fact, it may have the opposite unintended effect, and that's to uh, uh, to uh, to actually drive demand up and, of course, then create uh, even greater demand, creates higher prices. So uh, it's there's a number of ways of looking at it, and uh, I've spent a lot of time working with U.S. media uh, on uh, the intricacies of uh, U.S. refineries and the gas issues down there, and I can tell you it's really critical that people understand this is summertime, and uh, we tend to have problems with refineries overall. They tend to run into a lot of trouble, uh, and uh, it doesn't take a hurricane to do that. There's a number of other factors that play into this. So I assume then that the idea of what's been suggested up here, of you know, getting rid of the carbon tax for a while, it would be the same issue. Uh, not to the same extent. Canada has plenty of capacity, and uh, the United States, to a lesser extent, does export as well. But Canadian capacity is probably better than American capacity overall because the demand situation is not quite the same. Uh, in Canada, and I, again, I referred to this back in February when I suggested to the uh, uh, Parliamentary Budget uh, Finance Committee that we ought to temporarily hold off on the carbon tax, which did increase after that. Uh, we, I also suggested that we look at uh, ways in which to rebate the massive windfall the federal government is collecting by the GST being applied to the almost the doubling of the price over the past uh, 12, 14 months. Uh, you know, take my word for it, Stats Can came out with that yesterday. I think there's a number of ways the federal government could and should approach this in Canada. 
but won't. And we'll be the only G7 nation that uh, not only won't decrease taxes on fuel to try to alleviate the burden, uh, we'll be the, the only country that I know of in the world that actually increased taxes during a pandemic. You got to remember the carbon tax uh, was introduced in backstop in provinces like ours in uh, in April of 2020, and it's uh, since increased to about 12 and a half cents a litre. So I hope people understand that because it's compounded the misery. And I, I don't even want Scott go down the road that you and I talked about before of what happens when countries like Canada with the third largest provable reserves in the world decides it's cool and trendy to kill pipelines the very pipelines that have delivered the shortfall of oil and products around the world. So do you believe then that if the federal government doesn't do this and there doesn't seem to be any inclination, they've said so far they're not going to do this, uh, do you believe that them not cutting the carbon tax is because so much money now is flowing in because of the increased cost of gas, this is putting more money in their coffers and with the debt and deficit they have, they need that? Or do you believe if they don't do it, it's because philosophically, they probably, a lot of people say they're probably quite thrilled with the price of gas because it's met less people driving and less fuel consumption. Which one would it be? I think both, Scott. I think they recognize that they've painted themselves into a, a fiscal financial corner uh, in which they need that money to finance other goodies uh, and promises. Um, uh, and, you know, we can, uh, there wouldn't be enough time to debate all of them, but certainly some of them, uh, you know, are really about a government that knows that it's not far away from being hauled in by uh, you know bondholders saying just a minute your fiscal situation is that you're you're running a deficits of 50 billion plus a year uh, how is that sustainable economically if you have a downturn in the economy which higher interest rates would bring about the second part is is the one you also addressed and i think it's where the liberals or this group of liberals are at because my my group of liberals wouldn't have gone down this road they want it three dollars a liter and i have no doubt in my mind that to get to their you know the, this world of fantasy land that which we can all drive evs have windmills in our backyards and solar panels on our roofs uh you know is where we have to go uh, unfortunately it's not realistic it's on it, it does deal with uh, a world that we have not seen yet that we are not about to see anytime soon and for which uh, despite uh, these wonderful laudable goals um is uh, is leading the world to a, a very very dark place and i don't take canada's position or the this government's position and its friends in the ndp and the Bloc and the uh, the greens look what's happened in europe spent trillions of dollars to move the needle what maybe two percent reduction at the end of the day you still need hydro you still need uh natural gas you still need oil and yes the world still needs coal uh, these on other than that we have energy poverty and i'm not sure that uh, canadians really understand that but imagine shutting all your plants down and uh, having to manage in the winter or the summer without air conditioning, without uh, heating. And that's <laughs> what these guys are calling for. Unfortunately, it's, uh, it's left us in that very terrible, dark situation where their policies won't work in the real world. Yeah, the last couple of days, we don't want to be living without air conditioning on the Hamilton area. Uh, Dan <laughs> McKay, President of, <laughs> President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this, Dan. You never hear Scott. Cheers. Have a great day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is a controversy brewing about a mass shooting that happened in Nova Scotia in 2020. 22 people were shot and killed. Let me read from the Halifax Examiner, a report that they put out a few days ago. RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lookie made a promise to Public Safety Minister Bill Blair in the Prime Minister's office to leverage the mass murders of April 18, 19, 2020 to get a gun control law passed. A week after the murders, she pressured RCMP in Nova Scotia to release details of the weapons used by the killer, but RCMP commanders in Nova Scotia refused to release such details 
saying doing so would threaten their investigation into the murders. Who, if either, should we then be more upset with in this? Or who is more in the wrong? The government for asking for this? The RCMP commissioner for pushing for this? I want to bring in Christian Luprecht. He is, uh, he is an expert in these kind of things. He is a professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, a fellow at the McDonnell-Laurie Institute. Christian, thank you for this today. Good morning, Scott. Who, uh, when you heard this, did it surprise you that there would be political involvement in a policing issue like this? Well, I think John Ibbotson's uh, column in the Globe and Mail, I mean, makes it pretty clear this morning that uh, certainly John Ibbotson is hardly surprised that this government gets involved politically in uh, uh, in this type of matter, given that that appears to be somewhat of the track record. Uh, and he also believes that this isn't going to stick. Um, now, I think I have a sort of slightly different take on this. I, I'm not sure it's exactly political interference. I think uh, in the strict uh, term of the RCMP Act, because that would require a minister or the prime minister to direct the commissioner to do certain things. And I don't think anybody directed the commissioner to do anything. But clearly somebody at political level realized that they could instrumentalize a mass shooting in order to advance a particular political agenda. And that to that effect, it would be in the interest of national headquarters to start shaping the story and the narrative that was coming out of Nova Scotia. And that meant having to release um, or that releasing uh, the weaponry involved would play to their favor. And of course, the local detachment, uh, the local H, uh, H division and uh, the officer in charge, Superintendent Darren Campbell, um, had some issues with that. And I think he had two good reasons for that. One is before you release the information, you want to make sure you have fully accurate information. And that was a highly dynamic situation. On the other hand, um, it, it's not clear to this day whether there may not be a at the time have been an ongoing investigation or there may still be a separate ongoing investigation, for instance, into cross-border gun trafficking. Um, and an ongoing investigation would be one of the two reasons why the RCMP would decide not to release certain types of information. So I think this whole issue uh, looks rather problematic from the perspective of the commissioner exerting influence um, over what is really a criminal matter that was fully within the jurisdiction of H Division with no real uh, operational reasons for headquarters to influence or to take over uh, uh, this investigation because it didn't fall under the national uh, mandate and it didn't fall under the f one of the four federal mandates for the RCMP. Well, and again, if, if the story is accurate, if what we're hearing is accurate, or the, the officers who are investigating were warning saying, if we release this, it could hamper or affect our investigation. It could give away information that we don't want in the public yet. And if there was pressure, in fact, to do that, that, that to me seems almost more problematic. Politicians are going to do what politicians are going to do, I suppose. But police, boy, they, they seem to, ha you, you, if you're an officer investigating something like this, you have to be an arm's length or more away, don't you, from the political side? Yeah, and you would think that the commissioner would run a clear firewall there in terms of um, any bureaucrat or anybody from the political level uh, making clear that uh, it, it would not be acceptable under any circumstances. I mean, the acts are pretty clear. This is clearly an operational matter. It's an ongoing investigation that there is no room here for civil servants or for politicians to uh, exert pressure or influence of any sort. 
Um, so uh, in terms of operational uh, uh, issues, I think the other issue here is, so I think Superintendent Campbell realized this was going to be a problem. He might have to testify to this one day because the notes that he takes aren't directly related to the investigation. They're related to the conversations. Um, and so I think he's basically creating a, a paper trail and a track record. The other element that's, of course, disturbing here is that allegedly based on the notes, if the notes are correct, people were in tears. And I think the challenge here is is that this is a commissioner who was installed by the prime minister for one single purpose, which is to root out bullying. And what sort of behavior do we see? We see the commissioner reproducing precisely the institutional culture that she was single-handedly mandated to root out. Yes, and you know what? You make a very good point. You mentioned the notes. So these notes were apparently made right after this meeting with the commissioner. And I don't know, Christian, I don't know in, in your line of work, if you, if you, I don't know if you make notes about every single meeting you have with every single person that you come across. I don't. I would only make notes if it was something that would be unique, that would strike me as being, oh boy, there may be something going on here. I better remember this. And so if he was making notes, I'm, you know, I'm assuming here, and that's always dangerous to do, but I'm assuming that probably there was something tweaked in him saying, this is problematic. I better make very clear notes so I remember this down the road. Superintendent Campbell is a highly experienced investigator. Good and police investigators make copious notes on everything, especially if they believe that one day, some months or years down the road, they might be cross-examined or might have to testify to that matter. And I think Superintendent Campbell realized this was going to be, a, he, he was being put in an impossible situation between what was required in terms of his uh, investigative uh, uh, competency and professionalism uh, and the demands that were being made by headquarters. And headquarters was furious because local RCMP H division was releasing in news releases details that didn't match up with the news releases that national headquarters was putting out. And so so I think national headquarters and the politicians were ending up with egg on their face. And I think this was uh, then what, in, what, what caused the commissioner to ask uh, Superintendent Campbell, uh, his crops officer, so the second in command, and the communications person, Liz Scanlon, to fly to Ottawa. And after that, the releases from the local division seemed to have sort of slowed down substantially. So they were clearly giving, I think, a dressing down in terms of how this investigation was going to run. And I think the, perp- the problem here is, of course, we're using evidence to shape a particular narrative rather than letting the evidence speak for itself. You know, it, we we were just a few moments ago on the show talking about never let a good crisis go to waste. It sounds like that's the motto here as well. And, and you know, that can work, I suppose, at some times, but there are other times when, boy, may, maybe you should let a crisis sit for a little while before you try to use it. It's uh, It'll blow up. It's... Uh, it's a, it's a crazy story, and it's uh, not done yet. Uh, Christian Luprecht from the Royal Military College of Canada at Queen's University, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate this. My pleasure, Scott. Have a good morning. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. People are returning to movie theaters to watch movies again. I saw Top Gun the other day. First time back to a theater in I don't know how long. Fantastic movie, by the way. Go see it. But now Cineplex is saying, you know what? If we're going to be moving forward and we are going to be content competing for your in, for your money and competing for your eyeballs and getting people into the theaters and having digital availability to buy tickets and everything else ready for you we got to jack up our prices a little so we have to add a dollar 50 booking fee to any movie ticket bought online or through their app so you the viewer get a little more coming out of your pocket ostensibly to help them build their digital abilities 
Is this something we should have expected? Let's bring in Paul Moore. He's a sociologist at Toronto Metropolitan University who studies the history of movie going and the movie business in Canada. Paul, thank you for the time today. Hey, morning. Good to be on. I must say, as I read your job title, you have the <laughs> most awesome job title in the world. I don't know how you end up studying that, but that is what I want to do in my next life. Well, you know, it does kind of go back to the the early days of looking at the movie ads and wondering what you were going to see and not being able to uh, buy tickets in advance until you actually got to the theater. So, you know, actually, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to start with the nostalgia. I'm going to start with the history. Imagine or remember the 80s when you saw the original Top Gun. Yes, I just want I just want to bring people back to the times the seventies and the eighties when we had to line up. We didn't know if it was going to be sold out. We were going to be talking to strangers. We didn't know where we were going to sit. We uh, uh, getting the tickets, finding the seats, lining up, maybe having to negotiate with strangers, maybe not being able to sit. <laughs> we're in our favorite seats. You know what else we've lost? All that excitement, all that excitement, maybe we've lost all that excitement, but we've also lost the nuisance of showing up and it being sold out and finding no seat. You know, I, I just wanted to start with the history no, of, rem, of, of reminding people it was a lot more exciting to go to a blockbuster and not exactly know what it was going to feel like and where we were going to sit. But, you know, these new systems where we're buying tickets ahead of time, they sell so many headaches. In my, I don't want to be a Cineplex apologist. I, you know, I'm not the business person and I'm not here to sell Cineplex. But in my opinion, um, you know, the new way of buying tickets is yeah, so much better. Of course it is. Well, I can remember seeing the photos, and I don't remember if I saw this in real life, but I remember seeing the photos of the lineups for, say, Star Wars or Jaws back in the day yeah. when those things were huge. And the lineups would be around the block, and you may have to stand there for two full showings of the movie before you could get in. And so on that case, on that front, you're absolutely right, that anything that they can do to make it so you can know you're going to get in and don't have to make a trip to the place and wait um, – that seems to me to be good. The The flip side, I suppose, Paul, is that, you know, movie theater tickets also back then, you could go for $2 Tuesdays. Movies are not $2 anymore, and now we're adding more. I mean, when we went to Top Gun a couple of weeks ago, I think it was $22. Now, we saw it in IMAX, but I think it was $22 a piece. It, it, it's oh, already expensive. Out. You plunked out for the IMAX, and, and you know what? It was probably worth it in, you know, for that experience, too. It is definitely more expensive. You know, this um, strategy that they've done of adding a surcharge for buying your tickets in advance online, that's a little curious to me. I'm no economist. Like, that's not my job. But they could have raised the tickets for everyone in this time of inflation. That's kind of what everyone's expecting, right? Um, you know, we're paying a dollar fifty more per liter for gas. We're paying dollar fifty more for things at the grocery store. We're paying dollar fifty more for a whole lot of things. So they could have raised all the tickets and then given people a discount if they were willing to sign up for their scene points or willing to sign up mm -hmm. for you know. So you know, I think it's interesting that they made this a surcharge for the privilege of buying tickets in advance. I think. I, I imagine 
what might have been happening is that everyone was paying the same price for tickets, even people who were buying several days, getting the best seats several days in advance. And the people showing up later, getting the worst seats, were paying the same amount. So I bet they were maybe getting a lot of complaints from the latecomers about, um, you know, just trying to imagine the strategy behind it. It isn't clear to me what the strategy behind it is. But on face value, uh, you know, uh, paying more for the best seats does make some sense. And in fact, before COVID, that's the way it was. You know, a, a little bit of nostalgia, but not that far back to the 80s. And so, you know, but like only a few years ago before COVID, the only people who had reserved seats in advance were the premium tickets and the IMAX auditoriums and the VIP seats. So it, it, the idea of reserving your seats in advance is because uh, of needing to do it during COVID. You know, so that's another kind of just reminder of where we were only a year ago during the lockdown. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. And for all the reasons that you started with at the beginning of this, I, I don't see much likelihood that a whole lot of people are going to balk at this now and say, oh, $1.50, forget that. I'll just go and line up and get my tickets. I, this is this seems to me like it's one of those things, one of those charges that if you want to go to a movie, you're going to maybe grind your teeth a little bit. You're going to go, oh, they're getting me again, but yeah, fine, just do it. I, I just I don't, I don't see people all of a sudden saying $1.50 is going to make me go back to the old ways. Well, it's also, you know, it's only a dollar if you're a scene member, and there's no charge at all if, if you sign up for their subscriptions in a club membership, which, you know, if we subscribe to so many things these days, our Netflix and our CBC Gems and our This Is and our That, and, you know, everything's gone subscription. And Cineplex, too, you know, has this alternative, if you want to avoid the fees, um, you know, nine ninety nine for one free movie a month. You know, if you go to the movies fairly often, that's a good deal. Again, mm. not trying trying not to be a Cineplex apologist. I'm not here to sell their their stocks and shares or anything. But <laughs> that is uh, that is Paul Moore, sociologist at Toronto Metropolitan okay. University, with the as I say, with the greatest sounding job ever. Paul, we'll 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 talk again. I, we're going to dive into more about what you do because uh, the history of movie going and the movie business in Canada. Mm. That's a good one. You chose a good one. Appreciate you doing this today. Thank you. Hey, good day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This next segment, emphasis on the good. Underline it, italicize it, bold it, put an exclamation mark on it. This is a good story. This is this is a good bit of news in this community. Learned yesterday that the Paletta family will be donating $50 million to the Hamilton Community Foundation. 50, that's a, it's an extraordinary amount of money. It is in a huge gift. I want to bring in Terry Cook from the Hamilton Community Foundation and Paul Paletta from the Paletta family. Gentlemen, thank you for the time today. Thank Great you. To be here. Thanks for having us. It is Paul. Let's go to you first because this is a, uh, as I say, uh, this is a remarkable thing. We we know that there are people in our community that have money. Uh, and we have seen many great moments of philanthropy over the years, but not everybody that has money does stuff like this. Why, why do this? Why give this kind of money? Well, I mean, our, our dad came from uh, Italy, you know, back in the late 40s, and he came here basically with nothing, and he was one of eight kids. And, you know, he really got his first business start in Hamilton. And, you know, he, he got some bumps and bruises along the way, but... You know, he, he started in Hamilton and Hamilton gave him plenty of opportunity. And one of the things that was very important to him that he instilled in his four boys 
was making sure that we didn't lose sight of where he came from and where we came from and always uh, do our part to help uh, future generations uh, succeed. And that's that's the big part of what this is about. And and that's I mean that's a terrific lesson and good for good for the family for remembering that lesson and and you know as I say because again a lot of people they they can make their money and you can forget where you came from, but I'll say this just before I before I get to Terry Paul one more to you here, fifty million dollars is a lot of money it's an extraordinary amount and even with what you just said about those lessons that's a, that it's still an enormous amount of money that you're donating here. Yeah, it's 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 a big amount and uh, you know uh, our dad's been. Uh, very successful and we're we're continuing to grow the business and you know we we hope to do more in years to come terry you uh you're when you get the call or the email or the meeting or whatever it is that says hey we'd like to give you 50 million dollars your reaction is well obviously uh you're touched and you're humbled because it's all about trust and the paletta family and other families that we deal with who have different capacities have lots of choices, uh, both in terms of where they want to make their mark geographically and with respect to what charity they want to partner with. In this case, we were very fortunate that uh, one of the key advisors to Paul and his brothers and his mom was Mario Perron, who was a partner in a local county firm, and Mario served on our board. So he well knew the history of the Community Foundation back to 54, the way in which we honor uh, the families and the businesses that we work with. And I had had some exposure because of my previous life in politics to Paul's dad, and I was struck by how consistent the values were about just what Paul has spoken about, the fact that the family and the business had done well here and they hadn't forgotten where they came from. And and that was in very close alignment with the history of our foundation, which started with a single gift of $200 modestly from a widow in North End Hamilton in 1954 huh. and has grown to order over a quarter of a billion dollars in assets today. And that's a testament to the generosity of Hamiltonians and to donors like the Palettas, but also large and small donors from across the spectrum. So it's a wonderful story of generosity and vision. It is. And I want to get to what this money will be used for in a moment. But Terry, look, people know you have known you for many years involved in this community. You've been tied into this community for a long time. What is it about this area? Because we do seem to have an unusually high number of people who have been very successful, Charles Jervinsky or David Braley. I mean, you go down the list. I don't want to certain because I'll, I'll miss some and then it'll look bad. But we seem to have an unusually high number of people who have done very well, but then have decided to give large sums back to the community. Why is it? What is it about this area that that happens? Well, I think because it's a place built on hard work and a blue collar ethic. And I think that instills in lots of successful people a, a reminder of where they came from, how much work it took to get to the point that they are at today. And I think that's often passed to the next generation of, of leaders within families and businesses that uh, you can't forget your roots and you have to be so mindful. And I think uh, grateful for the folks who have helped you along the way. And that's certainly what we have here. The The legacy of, of Pat and Anita, uh, Paul's parents, the reminder that the next generation continue to drive the business and give back. And I, I think a sense of connectedness to where they came from. Paul, there are uh, innumerable ways that somebody could decide to put $50 million to use. Why the Hamilton Community Foundation? Well, you know, Terry and Terry and our family go have a have a long history. We always had, uh, you know, lots of faith in Terry and his skills. We met 
HCF and their team. And as Mario said, uh, or sorry, as Terry said, uh, Mario Perron used to be on their board, and and he helped us screen charities to to uh, to choose. And uh, being Hamilton, you know, meeting knowing Terry, meeting his team, we just felt it was a good fit for us. So Terry, where does this amount of money? Now it's not it, it's part of it is well explain how this is it's it's a, it's money up front and it's also a pledge down the road but how will this money be spent what will it be used for how is it going to help so let's start with the structure uh we received a gift of 25 million about two years ago which frankly we hope to announce with the Paletta family but because of covid we had hmm. numerous false starts because we wanted people to be able to gather safely and ironically i wasn't present yesterday because i was i'm in COVID protocols as they say in the nba not that i'll ever play in the nba <laughs> so it's an upper upper body injury then exactly and there's a there's a future <laughs> pledge of 25 that will come in over a number of years and the way it works uh this will be a donor advised fund in which our staff who spend a lot of time with local charities in hamilton and burlington will work with and advise the paletta family and at the end of the day they will make recommendations as they've already made uh yesterday uh, paul can talk about some of the specific grants that were announced but a number of them were in the area of healthcare to local institutions that help to provide critical services to Paul's dad in his last days. And prior to that, they had responded to our pandemic response to a very number, a number of very essential charities in Hamilton and Burlington that are doing critical work through the pandemic. So it'll be an evolving process over time in which we will identify the community's highest needs and the Paletta family will be involved in, uh, in recommending grants. Paul, uh, as Terry says, a number of the early ones, these early grants are directed to healthcare. Is is that the target for this generally, or is it just coincidental that healthcare is up front, but this money could go to other things as well? Um, it, it, we did healthcare to start off with because being a uh, being a, a fund created uh, for the legacy of our parents, you know, healthcare with our with our dad was was critical in his last days, and the three uh, the three. The three grants that we did make yesterday, one was for uh, kidney research and kidney care at the at the uh, Oakville Trafalgar Hospital, where Dad Dad, you know, spent a lot of time in his last days. And then we did another two hundred fifty thousand to Hamilton Health Sciences, where Dad got some cardiovascular work done. And Joseph Brandt Hospital got a hundred thousand dollars yesterday. Um, and you know they they we had, we'd done a bigger donation there uh, a few years back, and and they were they were important in dad's in dad's care as well. But going forward, you know things like education programs, uh, children in need, uh, are, are are on our radar for sure. And and we're open to to discussing other opportunities, stuff that we may not even be aware of that may need hmm. some help. So it's 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 a blank canvas when it comes to wh- where the money can go. It is, uh, as I said off the top, it is a fantastic story. This show is called Good Morning Hamilton. We're emphasizing the good part of it with this one today because this is uh, great. Terry Cook, thanks for joining us. And uh, Paul Paletta, uh, thanks for joining us. And honestly, thank, uh, speaking for the community, thank you for doing this. This is uh, incredibly generous, and I'm sure many people will appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Th- thanks very much. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Should students be allowed to have a cell phone in the classroom? And you can make a case for both. You can say that there are things that students need to be able to look up or to use the calculator or to have access online as a yes. 
You can say that what happened in the states in Texas with the shooting the other day, the other week, shows that yes, if there's an emergency, they have to be able to call 911. The flip side can be really distracting. Should a teacher have to compete with cell phones to keep the students' attention? It's a tough question. It's our poll question, by the way, today on Twitter. Go to 900CHML on Twitter. Should students be allowed to have cell phones in classrooms during teaching time? Yes or no? Well, let's bring in someone else who uh, we love to turn to when we have issues of difficult issues in education because she is terrific at this stuff. I love bringing her on. Annie Kidder, Executive Director of People for Education. Annie, thanks for the time today. Good morning. This is a this is a conundrum, isn't it, for educators and parents and everyone? I think I think every student would say yes, but I'm not sure that students are necessarily the ones we should be asking first about this. So, what do you think? Are are cell phones in classrooms a good idea? I I actually think we should be asking students first. Um, I think it's not like everything in education. It's not black and white. There's no binary yes no. It's bad or good. I think uh, the ship has sailed in terms of our high use of technology in education, in our lives. Uh, we assume we can go onto the internet, you know, find things, have discussions, have conversations, collaborate with people anywhere in the world. And so it's not just, um, you know, a cell phone or no cell phone issue. It is how are we you know, supporting the education system and teachers in classrooms to be able to use technology effectively um, so that it's not just about dealing with, you know, people looking at their phones, which we are all guilty of all the time. Yes. Because we yes. become kind of addicts to our phones. Um, but it's more like, okay, everybody take out your phones because and what's amazing is nearly all, you know, depending on their age, kids have phones now. Um, and let's use them to do X, Y, and Z. So I think that we may be, I'm, I'm old, so <laughs> it may be a kind of old-fashioned reaction to how annoying phones are, how annoying it is when you're trying to talk to your child and they're on their phone. But I'm also annoyed. You should hear my husband on the subject of how annoying I am. Um, so all of us need to talk about and think about and manage our addiction to our phones, but just banning them, I, I don't, it's too simplistic an answer, doesn't actually work, means then I'm sneaking looking at my phone. Um, but teachers, teachers have a lot of wisdom and a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience. And it's, and dealing with distractions or kids who aren't paying attention or aren't engaged is a never ending uh, kind of a challenge in classrooms. But just getting rid of phones, I don't think actually addresses that. Let me go back to what you started with when you said we should be talking to students first. Now, when I said probably maybe they shouldn't be, it was because I would assume, I would guess that if you ask students, should you be able to have your cell phone, 99.9% .9 will say, absolutely, I should. And maybe that's correct. But I also think that if you if you ask their parents, I bet you would probably get a slightly different answer because they'd say exactly what you said. No, they're always staring at their phone. Please take it away from them when they're <laughs> trying to be taught by the teacher. Force them to do something to not be just tempted by that phone. But maybe we're not asking students the right question because okay. maybe we should be asking students because, you know, if I can't work my technology – I, I phone my child, who's an adult now, but it's like, maybe we should be asking students, how could we use phones more effectively in the classroom? What do you love about working on your phone? How do you think, you know, now we're going to do a project. 
on Indigenous culture and history, uh, which because it's in, it's Indigenous History Month, how could we use our phones more effectively to work on that? Can you think of ways that you could collaborate with other kids in the class or kids in other parts of the country? So I think just asking students, you know, should we ban your phone? Um, you're probably going to get an answer of no. But let's ask them more because they are incredible innovators, young people, and they can think uh, about answers that, that we can't imagine. So I think engaging them in the conversation is right. And I think we have to be really careful of our, of our, our instinctive reaction to uh, phones are bad. And again, you know, yes, they may be annoying to parents, but we are all guilty of um, Absolutely, you know, overuse of our phones. Absolutely, and I and I don't I don't suspect that many people would say they're bad, but I, I a distraction, yes. And, and I mean, maybe there's a middle ground here, and and you and I are probably not going to solve this debate debate right now that's been going on forever. But maybe there's a middle ground that says, you know, you got to check in your phone when you come into class, and then when the teacher says, okay, you can now grab your phone to do the work that you've been assigned to do, as opposed to the teacher competing with it all the way through. Well, do we know that that's a fact, that teachers are competing with them all the way through? There are lots. I mean, we, we actually, um, a couple of years ago in our annual Ontario school survey, uh, we asked principals about teachers using phones in class, and many of them used them. So I'm not sure we're hearing this barrage of calls uh, from teachers going, please ban cell phones. Um, so I, and I, I think part of it is about trust. And yeah, kids are going to, you know, they're going to be chatting with each other sometimes. And it's a whole new thing that we have to deal with. But but saying everybody has to hand them in and then we'll let you have them. I'm not sure if that's actually the strategy that's going to work. And and when when you talk to teachers and staff in schools about the innovations that they're 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 working on part of that innovation is how do i use technology better and how do i use the technology that kids love and are way better at using than than i am probably certainly than i am um so it's not a matter again it's not a black or white issue and it's not like you can only have them if and when i give you permission it's how can i you know how can we work with kids and listen to kids about how they see them being used. And I think it is really important that we're asking young people these questions. And Annie, I would bet, uh, you said you're old, I don't believe that, but uh, <laughs> you know, you, you, you probably in school, now you may have been the perfect student who never got in trouble, but you may have also passed a note to other students in class once upon a time before cell phones, I know I did. Is this really any different than that? Well, no, and that's what I mean about the, what we have to be thinking about is, uh, you know, are students engaged? How are they engaged? How do we deal with that? Because it has, it's a perennial problem. Um, you know, I, I was not a good student, and I would find <laughs> many things to do to distract myself from whatever was happening in the class. So really, it's really about that, you know, the incredibly important relationship between teachers and students and students in each other. It's, re it's the incredibly important skills of uh, collaboration and how are students working together. And we do have to think about whether or not students are engaged. And if they're not, why not? And I'm not blaming anybody with this, but it it's, you know, we have this technology, which isn't even new anymore. Um, and And it is like, it's a huge problem in the world. I'm not I'm not denying that part. 
it, I really do think, I mean, I think it's hilarious. I was just talking about this at a meeting yesterday that all the people who work in Silicon Valley won't have their, let their children have, you know, tablets or cell phones or go to school where there's technology because they see, you know, they see the problem with it in our lives, but banning isn't the answer. But we really do have to think about, because we have to think about, you know, obviously looking at today's world, where are kids getting information? Where are we all getting information? Exactly. How do we understand, you know, what we can trust? How to use it best. Yeah. yeah, How to use it best. That is Annie Kidder, Executive Director of People for Education. Annie, thank you for this. We always appreciate having you on. Thanks for your time. Okay, bye-bye. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If I had to bet many of the people listening at some time or another have taken a drive down across the border into the States to find some of those products that we just don't have here, even if we don't know what those products are. There are a lot of people who go across the border, even just to Walmart or somewhere, because they go down the grocery aisles, and there's all kinds of wonderful things, maybe not wonderful for us, but wonderful things that we cannot get on grocery shelves or store shelves in Canada. Earlier this week, this whole discussion arose because in the roundtable, we were talking about Pop-Tarts. And there are Pop-Tarts available for sale in Canada, but I was down in the States on a, on a vacation last week, and picked up some new flavors of Pop-Tarts I'd never seen before. I didn't know they made them. And in fact, they didn't before because they're all marked as new, but they're not available in Canada. So the question is, why do some items not make it across the border, even when the same company ships to Canada, but doesn't still ship all the same products up here? I want to bring in Bruce Winder. He's a retail analyst and he's an author. He joins us now. Bruce, thank you for the time today. Hello, is that is Bruce there? Hi, can you hear me? There, now I got me? you, Bruce. Thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. It. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate that. Well, so listen, um, talking Pop-Tarts may not be the highest brow form of discussion, but hey, they're a great <laughs> jumping off point to this topic because I understand that if a company doesn't ship to Canada anyway, we shouldn't expect to have their product on our shelves. But if a certain company already ships to Canada, why would they not ship all their stuff to Canada? Why would some of their stuff only be available down in the States? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, it really depends on the circumstance. But sometimes what happens is some of the novelty items that come out, you know, for a short period of time or something to create a marketing buzz, sometimes it's just not worth it to sell it in Canada because our volumes are so much lower than the U.S., right? And doing business in Canada is more expensive than the U.S. I mean, the, in Canada, we have higher taxes. We have uh, significantly less uh, population density, depending on where you are. And it costs a lot more to move product around, and labor rates are higher, etc. So, you know, if you're a big consumer packaged goods company, um, it just might not be worth sort of uh, selling it in Canada. Um, if it does well, and it does super well, and there's massive numbers, they might bring it out the next year, but... You know, certainly they're going to be focusing on the U.S. market, which is, you know, roughly 10 times the size of the Canadian market. And everything you just said there makes perfect sense. It's 100% logical. But if you've already got a truck that's coming up to Canada and you've already got product that is made, why would you not just throw some of those boxes on there? Because I'm telling you, if we're already got people driving across the border simply to find this, I can't believe they wouldn't sell here. That's that's the part to me that's confusing. If you if you're already yeah. coming, why would you not bring it? Because to sell it in Canada requires manufacturers to jump through a number of hoops. First of all, you have to have bilingual packaging, French and English, which isn't always the case 
In America, sometimes they do trilingual packaging, French, English, Spanish, but often they don't. It's just English. You also have uh, Health Canada. You have to jump through and you have to get testing done and you have to fill out forms and documentation and get approval. And you know what? It just, uh, you know, and it all depends on what grocers want to carry up here, too you know, depending on how big the volume is. But there's a lot There's a lot of hoops that you wouldn't see as a customer that grocers have to jump through in order to bring a product to Canada. That was the next question I was going to ask, is whether the people up here, whether the sellers, the grocers and the store owners, do they want these things? Because I assume, again, any product you bring up, you have to put into your system. And if you just have the usual ones, they're already there. It's pretty easy. Adding a bunch of new flavors or new products, you have to do a lot more work, I would assume. Well, yeah, you, you do have to do more work, and certainly the grocers in Canada would be interested in new products. They love new products because it helps keep customers engaged. But, you know, at the end of the day, it could be more from the, the, the company in the U.S. saying, okay, let's, let's do this in the U.S. first. Let's get it right. And if this thing takes off, if it's massive, then, you know, year two, we'll roll it out to Canada and, and Australia and some of the secondary markets that they would look at. Now, there is a flip side to this because there have been over the years products that have started in Canada that have not first been available in the States. Maybe some to, to still, uh, I think if I, if I recall correctly for years, ketchup chips, for example, were a very Canadian exactly. thing or uh, I think even all dress chips. So, okay, so why would it work the other way? Why would they not, why would they do certain things only in Canada rather than going right down to the States immediately for the same reason you just mentioned? There's a couple answers to that. One is, believe it or not, there are certain trends in Canada that are only in Canada, like the ketchup chips. I don't know how it got that way, but it's something in Canada. It's like, you know, the Bloody Caesar, you know, versus in the U.S. You can't really get that. And um, the other reason, though, another answer to that would be that uh, big brands often use Canada as a test market because we're smaller. And they can go to somewhere like a London, Ontario, and, which is very popular as a test market. And test It is, yes, I've heard that. Yeah, before they decide whether they want to commercialize it in the U.S. Because if you make a mistake in London, Ontario, it's not the end of the world. You know what I mean? You know, you throw out, throw out a few things, you lose a few hundred thousand dollars. You make a mistake in the U.S. and you're going to lose tens of millions of dollars, right? So they use Canada as a bit of a uh, test ground because they know we have a diverse population, and uh, especially in London, and you know, we can kind of get the data and decide if they want to roll it out later. I've heard that about London. I, I, I've never really understood why London is the perfect Petri dish for sampling things, but apparently <laughs> it is, because I've heard that, that, they, that that's a common place for these things to be tried. It is, and in the U.S. they use uh, Ohio. There's a town in Ohio um, that is the same way. But yeah, London you know, has a little bit of everything. It has private sector, public sector, university, lots of different people from around the world reside there, whether it's for studying or working. Uh, you got a little bit of everything in Canada sort of in one little town, right? It's not too big. You know, it's small enough that you can control the test. Yeah, and, and I always go back when you talk about how it can cost. A moment ago, you said how it can cost millions of dollars. The, the, the one, there's lots that would come to mind. Everyone's got a different one. I always think of McDonald's pizza. About, exactly. I don't know, was it 15 years ago when every McDonald's had to put in these pizza ovens and this was going exactly. to be the thing? And I don't know, what did it last, four years, three years, and there's not a single place now that has a pizza oven left in it? It's been, it was a disaster. It was, and you look at, you know, Coke versus New Coke, and, you know, there's this whole story. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, probably the big lesson that everyone has learned, and Target learned it too, Target uh, Canada, is don't, don't yes. go from zero to everything overnight. Do a lot of testing and learning, and when you roll something out, roll it out um, in a very uh, sort of staged format. 
And test and learn, test and learn, test and learn around the whole way. Don't ever push the big button and get everything made. Because you, you know what? It's not guaranteed, and the risk of uh, catastrophe is high, and the cost of catastrophe is high. So everyone sort of learned that tough lesson. Bruce Winder, retail analyst and author. Thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it today. Yeah, no problem. Have a great day. Take care. Uh, catastrophe, though, there's no catastrophe. If, if the people from Pop-Tarts are listening, there's no catastrophe in sending Pop-Tarts to Canada. If, if, if there's some left on the shelves, Rick Zapron or I will buy the rest of them up for you just to make sure you're not caught. <laughs> Send the Pop-Tarts. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.